0: Greetings fellow humans, and welcome to the 5th edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'm glad to see that uh, with each edition I release, I, more and more people are coming in, and they're actually listening back to the previous episodes, so thank you, thank you very much. Now, this is a different edition of the podcast since I interviewed Dr. Angéline de Dios. She's a cultural geographer researching the intersection of mobility, music, creative labor, and ethnography. That's right, she's the first Scholar Cultural Scientist that I interview. She goes around in the real world and studies interactions with actual people. I always wondered during my PhD what and how the principles of scientific method are applied in the humanities and social science. Before we go deep, if you have any questions, suggestions or any comments about the show or anything, use the hashtag lefterisaskscience and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and share it so that more questions will be answered. Now, on with today's task at hand. Dr. De Dios, as I said, is a cultural scientist. She is now in Lingan University in Hong Kong and she studies transnational workers in the creative industries. But let's hear from her the specifics of her work.
1: What I'm doing now is I am an ethnographic researcher working in the general field of cultural studies around the topics of, um, music, creative work, or cultural labor. You could call it, you know, um, what we call generally performing arts as a form of livelihood. So what are the, Economic and social implications of uh, that sort of framing. Okay. And I look at that in combination with um, the study of migration and what we basically call transnationalism. So we're looking at groups of people who move and cross borders, but one, they're never permanent residents, or they're never fully assimilated into the countries where they um, are working. So most of them are workers. Um, so they're m- mainly what you would call economic migrants in the kind of classic globalization studies parlance. Um, but these um, people who keep moving transnationally are um, one, economic migrants. They're all they're workers. But two, they have, um, but they're, two, they're not, they're never citizens and they don't, they can't or they don't mean to be citizens of the countries where they work. So the one classic example is of, of, um, of the 250,000 plus, um, domestic workers from Indonesia and the Philippines who work here in Hong Kong. Um, you have a couple thousand who've been here 30 years uninterrupted. And are, ha- are not citizens. They will never be citizens. And many of them will actually not speak Cantonese even. So that speaks to the kind of world um, that they're confined to um, yeah. here uh, in the destination. <clears throat> That's a very classic example. Of, they're still transnational. And the Philippines, I would add, uh, is just like an hour and a half away from Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah. Um, very frequent flights back. So it's close, but it's just like impossibly distant. So I look at many different kinds of um, people like this uh, who would fall under the category of transnational migrants. Yeah. And um, how that came out in my PhD research, which I lecture and um, speak about and write about widely, is the case study of um, migrant Filipino musicians Um So these are musicians, these are working musicians, these are migrant musicians, they don't uh, perform their own material, they are what you would call cover performers, but they're really more entertainers. And the way that you would immediately identify them is they're the band in the hotel, or the cruise ship, or the theme park in parades. So I look at um, those three kinds of performance venues, um, and I look at three um, different field sites in Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, a little bit of Malaysia, and of course, um, Philippines, which is where they go back frequently.
0: One of the reasons that I wanted to interview academics is that I admire people that actually dedicate themselves into studying a specific subject. The journey that one takes until he or she arrives at the topic can be fascinating. So, uh, in the beginning of our discussion with Dr. Lidios, uh, she gave me a why she does her research through a very reflexive process that really explains why her research is important. She studied in the Philippines, in France, and when she arrived in Sweden, then something clicked.
1: Um, That's when I caught, I guess, what you would call the migration bug, because that's when I... I decided to focus my thesis on um, migrant rights um, because being abroad as a foreign student just made me very aware not just of my racial identity so I look like an Asian woman which you know like a single Asian woman who's young attracts a certain kind of attention in foreign spaces um, and as a student not as a domestic worker or somebody's wife, it, it confers quite a very interesting, um, experience of, um, of social reality that I think we all have to deal with. You know, like the big, of course, umbrella concept is globalization and migration. But then underneath that, there are so many other threads, but the threads are kind of parallel. Um, they're not the same thing, but they're parallel enough that you can start kind of making inroads in terms of mm-hmm. kind of investigating it. But that got me at least started in thinking about, okay, my Philippine, my, this weird experience, this very multifaceted experience that I'm constantly facing as a Filipino, um, Filipina, um, kind of graduate student, um, like a professional class even, not even working class, right? So there's so many layers to it. Um, I can use that to look at other kind of parallel experiences but then that brings us to that question of bias because that's something yeah. that'll never that'll never kind of be washed clean of the researcher <laughs> against you know like the fantasy of objectivity right um, yeah. and then the so it becomes part of the process i guess i would say
0: what made this interview interesting for me is that when i was asking something that i assumed had a simple answer a uh, yes or no answer or a number. It turned out to be a complex topic with not a definitive answer. Here's Doctor Dios answering when I asked, "How many overseas Filipino musicians are there?"
1: So yeah, that's a problem of categorization, which is a, okay. a turns out turns out to be a really thorny kind of theoretical issue, because there um, many of them have entered. Um, the destination country on tourist visas so they you can <laughs> track them <laughs> you can and then many of them also um, so it would be a problem of category and it would be a problem of time and and history like um, you would call it migration or imic or visa history yeah um so for quite a couple of i would beg that a number of a couple of thousand or a couple of tens of thousands, if you take the whole region together, migrants who were active, let's say, from the post-war era, okay. from the 60s and 70s onwards. So most of them um, are still... So they're long-term immigrants, so they're not Filipino anymore even. They changed their citizenship, they married local women, they had children who grew up here. Um, that's one way. You would put that at a couple of thousand. Because... Um, some of them are kind of they're they're a dying population and then you have a second wave of people who were quite active in the 60s up until the 80s Um, so they were kind of very they were free agents Um, um, countries were beginning to regulate nurses as a migrant group um, Mm -hmm. because you would have the government of Germany and the government of the Philippines like shaking hands and saying like we're going to send this X thousand. This numbers, number, yeah. Yeah, of of nurses, um, and it's a pattern you see everywhere. You know, they're a very typical migration pattern. Like it's brokered between countries. Well, musicians are not that kind of um, migrant group. They're just like slipping through the cracks, um, <laughs> because they're moved by contracts which are very temporary, anywhere from three months to six months. So I've heard again of some musicians here in Hong Kong who stayed at the same spot with the same job. For 20 years on just a renewing six-month basis.
0: Holy shit. I left my raw reaction from the recording there because the fact itself is astonishing, and I don't know how else to comment on it. So the answer to that question was many thousands, but probably under 10,000. Philippines generally is one country that is famous for exporting labor since the 80s. Construction workers, domestic workers, and musicians went abroad in order to find jobs and tend to their families. Apparently, though, there were musicians in the Philippines all over the world since the 17th century.
1: You could trace those back to um, historical records and accounts by um, on-ship historians for... Franciscan missions and so forth.
0: So the Spanish
1: were setting up their colonies. Um, the, the religious orders were in competition with each other. Who'll set up, you know, the flag first? So you had them, you had the Dominicans coming at this point and the Jesuits coming at that point and uh, uh, so on and so forth. So most of those records show that, you know, when they landed in the Philippines in different kind of key, um, spots, which became urban centers in different parts of the islands, um, the first thing that they would do is set up a square, you know, because people were living there, but they just kind of, uh, what people, you know, what they do through, not just mm-hmm. physically, but also through systems and management, Um they kind of bulldoze the way people built their society and they imposed something else. So the yeah. first thing that they did was they put together a square, a public square, and the church. Okay. And what does the church need? Musicians! <laughs> So musicians right away got weird privileges, especially native musicians. So this is where historical accounts of Filipino, um, native Filipino musicians under the colonial era um, match up with a lot of histories of um, um, musicians in South America, in Africa, in South Asia even. there's a lot of parallels between Goa and the Philippines in terms of um, migrant musicians. Um, who had long histories, colonial histories, because they were kind of colonized by um, Catholic, mainly Catholic, um Yeah.
0: So
1: from the 17th century, you have records of, you know, you had um, certain native musicians who were allowed to join transatlantic voyages between Mexico and the Philippines. Um, and I think fairly quickly, which was surprising um, by the Oxford historian DRM Irving, it found that... Um, Musical scores from native composers were traveling quite frequently from a very early period. And then when the Americans came around the 19th century, then you had like this huge flux because with kind of like American colonization, which came after 300 years,
0: like basically after
1: 300 years of Spanish colonization, um, the different kind of tribes in the Philippines, which were huge because the Philippines is all just kind of like a broken plate. <laughs> Geographically, it's a broken plate. So, um, the, only the concept of the Philippines as a country began with the Spaniards. So, those people, after 300 years of just kind of living in that confined structure imposed by the colonizers, began to self organize and create a rebellion movement and a government and all of that. They actually already established the government. Okay. They beat the Spaniards. And then the Spaniards sold them to the Americans. And then the Americans did what the Spaniards could not do in 50 years. Um, What the Spaniards could not do in 300 years. They united the country. How did they unite the country? They set up schools. And who benefited from the schools? The musicians! (laughs) (laughs) So with increased training and education, they migrated even more. And then, of course... You know, it's not accidental, but with the Americans and the American educational system as a colony, it came with the commercial industry of music, which mm-hmm. was not just affecting, which emanated, you know, very super quickly, like amazingly quickly in the 19, in turn of the 19th century. There, and there are many popular music historians who can say more about that. So Filipinos were key um, players, literally and figuratively, in spreading um, American pop music. Global pop music.
0: So, after the much-needed history lesson, which I needed, I asked about the findings of her work.
1: In my research on Filipino migrant entertainers, specifically musicians, it's summed up very neatly um, in this, uh, what's called an organic um, phrase that came out just kind of fully formed out of the mouth of my interviewee. So it's a precious phrase. Because it's unfiltered. And then he just said, Filipinos are cheap but high quality. That is the main finding. He meant that we're cheap because we always say yes. So that's a definitive statement about the labor conditions that a certain group of musicians will face and has faced. Um, over centuries on account of their identity, their okay. social identity. What that social identity is, whether it's racial or national or cultural, um, it's impossible to say because we, we Filipinos all look different. Um, there's a stereotype of how they look, right? And there's a stereotype of their gender, you know, Filipina versus Filipino. So that's one thing. Um, so they're cheap. So they're treated as a subordinate, um, class of musician and a subordinate class of migrant worker. Very few would even be considered professional unless they're, you know, um, A-list, um, cruise performers, um, who headline kind of, um, entire, uh, two-hour shows. Um, like very old school types of entertainers, um, who we'll go from one classroom change to another and then go through a whole review of, um, Broadway numbers over the last 30 years. So there's, so otherwise they're considered cheap in that way, but they're high quality. They're high quality in that, um, I could write many essays on num, enumerating these qualities, which if you were to replicate it in an experiment and come to certain conclusions, you would say that these, um, traits that are positively valued again on account of racial, cultural, and national identity of filipino mm-hmm. are, um, um, traceable and I think, um, symptomatic of other labor sectors that are quote unquote Filipinized. Okay. So if you, if you compare the domestic worker, a nurse, Different, right? Yeah. A, um, a waiter, a professor in a university. I can vouch for that. Um, and the musician in the hotel. And all of them strongly identified as Filipino. Strongly, like self-consciously identified and positively identified as Filipino. And so those were the kind of variables, if you chose those variables. They're all different professions. Um, different genders, all of that. And, and then you're testing only for the, um, their positive, um, correlation between their self-identification and their assignation, um, external, um, and cultural as Filipino. You know, they are other all Philippine passport holders. Um, and they all saw that positively. Um, you would see the same, um, suite of, um, responses like what they experience what and what they have constructed for themselves about their experience as filipino workers abroad and i would throw the same question at them i would ask why do you think filipinos are valued so highly obvious question but in this guy's case he didn't even have to be prompted he just came right. up with that formulation of their cheap and high quality, and then with a little more prompting, he tested positive for all the other indicators that I saw in the other interviews, and which is well backed up by the very kind of diverse and voluminous research on um, Filipino migrant workers of all stripes and all kinds in all places.
0: There are many questions I had about her conclusions, but mostly about how does she really use the data from her research. In conferences, for example, does she contend her the conclusions with other people in the same field but with different points of view, or does she even talk with people from other fields? I
1: think the first layer of my response is it's both. Okay. I use the data to um, not just challenge um, opposing points of view, but to raise points of view that aren't even acknowledged to be there in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, um, I would say that the general research bias of, we could call it um, creative industries research, which brings together a lot of um, urban geographers, urban studies folks, sociologists, sociologists, um historians um economic geo economic people yeah. basically <laughs> economic people like tracking cultural stuff um, and then you have this whole kind of um field of research in that i personally cannot access because of my uh, you know favorite term of cultural studies folks where i kind of position myself now basically you could call it critical social sciences and humanities is, um, like a recognition of, of researcher bias. So my main researcher bias is that I operate only in English, which excludes me from the research that's very active in South Korea, which is different okay. from Japan, which is different from, um, Mandarin speaking, Taiwan, the sin, the Sinosphere, right? Yeah. Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, mainland. Um, so th- that's a whole body of research that I can't access. So I'm out here slugging it out in the English-speaking world as, you know, as the minority, which has both, which are, interestingly is both a uh, positive and negative, you know, um, yeah, in terms of what I can access and what, you know, I have to put up with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what the, basically what the research tasks I have before me. Um, so, so the main research task is, is again acknowledging, you know, kind of underlining that there are points of view that need to be considered and factored in the basic research and theoretical assumptions of the field. Um, so just simply by writing about, um, Filipinos, you know, people I know. People um, who are very easy for me to access, people who would appreciate, and people who actually appreciate being um, part of the process, uh, as voices um, whose experiences are, are necessary to be listened to. It's part of the work.
0: When I was discussing with engineers or physicists, for example, it was easy for me to understand their methods, how they isolate parameters in the lab or in the computer and then they draw conclusions from their experiments. In a research of a cultural scientist like Dr. De Dios, though, there is no real isolation. The system is literally the whole world. So, their methodology consists of interviews and later analysis to find patterns that explain and understand behaviors. However, here comes my question. Dr. De Dios, is a woman researcher from the Philippines that does research in overseas Filipino musicians. Could I, as a Greek male, do the same research? And if so, would our conclusions be the same or at least similar?
1: Absolutely! Yeah, yeah, sure. We have to recognize that um, your positionality in terms of race, class, gender, would lead us to very different conclusions or very different experiences and um, interpretations. But that can be demarcated as a research issue if we're both kind of comparing, for instance, our experiences as guests, which would be a second positionality that would be active within the ethnographic research process of participant observation. So, okay. if like you and I were groupmates and we had to do like our presentation of the microgeography, meaning you're looking at what happens in the reality as structured by a certain space. You and I have decided, like, we don't want to spend so much time on this ethnography project. So <laughs> we, we're going to, you're going to go to one hotel and I'm going to go to the other hotel um, and we're going to watch, like, the first set of this Filipino band that we've both marked out. And immediately the research question and the research, like the conceptual, one of the conceptual pillars of this project that's emerging that we've agreed upon before the fieldwork, but will be influenced again and revised after the fieldwork where we, so in the method that you and I would choose, like, okay, we'll look at banter, what they say on stage, and I'll use field recordings. So you and I would go and then figure out, well, how would they treat you differently from how they would treat me? And then it would depend, if you were looking at a a performer in Singapore, and I was looking at a hotel performer in Hong Kong at this time, facing two different situations with the coronavirus situation, that would be like another layer, uh, uh, another kind of variable to look at. Yeah. So we would be drawing similar but different conclusions on that alone.
0: And that's it for another edition of Left Ask Science. It's a slightly longer one today, but some slightly complex ideas need a bit more time to be explained accurately. I'd like to thank Dr. Angelina Dios for her time and I'm looking forward to hear more about her research in the future. Thank you very much for listening and please share the episode, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts and use the hashtag LefterisAskScience to give suggestions or ask questions that I'll try my best to find the best answer to. Until we meet again, take care Keep learning, and be kind.